Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. As you dig out your Bible this morning, I would like each of us to think about the very love of God. Like us to think about the great privilege that each of us have as believers in Jesus Christ that we can read and that we can study God's written Word to mankind. I would like us to think about the love of God that caused him to actually express himself, making known to man his eternal truth. Making known to man the things that God loves and the things that God hates. And making it clear to us that so much of what we hear in this lost and dying world is the deception that comes from Satan himself. I would like us to think about the great love of God to make clear in his word the one true path to salvation. And then when you think about that, then friends, I would urge you to think about the men and the women of each generation that have gone before us, that have preserved, that have defended and translated God's word for us. So many men, so many have given their life for the word of God in order that we may sit here today with the word of God in our own language, with the privilege of being able to read it anytime and anywhere that we want Author Dan Brown, he wrote the best-selling book, The Da Vinci Code. Now, at first glance, if you look at this book, the plot is nothing more than a mystery novel. The murder of a curator at the Louvre in Paris, it leads to a trail of clues found in the work of Leonardo da Vinci and to the discovery of centuries-old secrets and centuries-old secret society. But as the plot unfolds, we find woven throughout this narrative a thorough rejection of the Christian faith. To be more specific, Brown suggests that the church invented the deity of Jesus Christ. So it wasn't just a book. It wasn't just a novel. Brown actually put forth a blend of fiction and historical assertion that suggests that the entire foundation upon which the Christian faith is established is false. In an interview to promote a later book, he was asked the question, are you religious? Here was his answer. I was raised Episcopalian, and I was a very religious kid. Then in eighth or ninth grade, I studied astronomy, cosmology, and the origins of the universe. I remember saying to a minister, I don't get it. I read a book that said there was an explosion known as the Big Bang. But here it says in the Bible that God created heaven and earth and the animals in seven days, which is right. And unfortunately, he said the response I got was, nice boys don't ask that question. And then a light went off, and he said, the Bible doesn't make sense. Science makes much more sense to me, and I just gravitated away from religion. You see, there is a battle that is taking place for the Word of God. 
It is inspired by Satan. It is fueled by unbelief. And it has been going on since the dawn of creation. This is why in the Word of God we often see that God's messengers were not well received. One could think of Elijah being referred to by King Ahab in 1 Kings chapter 18 as the one who had troubled Israel. Jeremiah comes to mind. The situation before us in Jeremiah 38 was that the powerful Babylonian army had surrounded the nation and had surrounded Jerusalem. And the Babylonian army, they actually had to withdraw for a very short time because Pharaoh's army was bearing down on them. And Jeremiah, the prophet of the Lord, he kept insisting that the city of Jerusalem would still fall, even though the Babylonian army had left for a period of time. And notice what Jeremiah teaches, starting in verse 2 of chapter 38. says, The Lord, he who remains in this city shall die by the sword, by the famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes over to the Chaldeans shall live. His life shall be as a prize to him, and he shall live. Thus says the Lord, this city surely will be given into the hand of the king of Babylon's army, which shall take it. And you remember that Jeremiah, he was just the messenger. This was a warning for the people that came from God himself. Jeremiah was then brought before Zedekiah, the last king of Judah. And take a look at verse 4 at what the text teaches. It says, therefore, the prince has said to the king, please let this man be put to death. Why? For thus he weakens the hands of the men of war who remain in the city and the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man does not seek the welfare of this people, but their harm. See, Jeremiah was the one that was proclaiming God's message to the people. But from their point of view, who was he? Jeremiah was the one that was guilty of treason. Now, this is just part of the message of the Bible, that if you actually dare to rise up and follow God, if you dare to rise up and follow his word, that most of the people in this world will not like you, that the world will accuse those who follow the Lord as the ones who are causing the problem. Jesus Christ has much warned us of this, didn't he? You remember his words in Matthew 7? He said, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are what? Few who find it. See, Jesus was drawing a contrast at this text. Jesus was drawing a line in the sand, if you will, between what was popular in the first century and what he was calling men to. Jesus was speaking against groups like the Pharisees, men with this outward, fake, counterfeit religion that comes from the pits of hell. He was speaking against this legalistic bent that was present. Because most people in this world are going to find some form of religion. Most people are going to find some system of belief. But that is not what Christ is calling his people to. There is a form of godliness in this world that always denies the power of God. Always. Because it simply does not come from God. And it pains me to say this, but much of what we see in the West is the man-centered worship that is built upon these lies. It's a perilous, perilous path to destruction. 
Now Christ, he didn't end it there. He doubled down. He said right after this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You see, according to our Savior, according to God the Son, most people of the world will follow the path to destruction. But be on guard, he says, because some will try to actually lead you astray. And then somber words that start in verse 21, where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And he goes on, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. This is a difficult text. You see, you can actually say the right words, and you can claim the name of Jesus Christ, and from outward appearances, oh, you may look so good. You may have a testimony of great works for the Lord. But if there is no genuine relationship with Jesus Christ, then there will be no salvation. We find this teaching again in Matthew 10, when Christ sent out the 12 disciples, and Christ warned them of persecution. And the Lord told them, starting in verse 16, he said, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up in councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and the Gentiles. You see, not only would the disciples be scourged and imprisoned for their faith, but Christ warned that persecution would actually come from where? Within their own families. And he said this, Now brother will deliver up brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. You see, what did Jesus Christ come for the first time? Well, he actually came to divide. Christ came to cause division among men, among families. Christ promised his disciples that they would be hated because of him. One more passage. Then we're going to put all this together and get to our study in Acts 17. Matthew 10 again, starting in verse 34. Jesus said, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. This is a hard truth from Scripture. This is a very difficult truth. But the love, listen to me, but the love of our earthly family members must not be greater than our love for Jesus Christ. It's not love it's not love to coddle a family member and pretend that they're truly in the faith instead of being honest about it and confronting them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, a disciple of Christ is called to endure the hatred of family if we must. It's not something we seek, but if we must, they are called to endure the hatred of family. 
A disciple of Christ is willing to endure the persecution to the point of death if need be, like a criminal carrying his cross to his own execution. And in the days of the New Testament, a criminal that did that, a criminal that carried their own cross, was an admission that the Roman Empire was correct in their sentence of death. So for a Christian to do that, for a Christian to take up their cross, would be a disciple of Jesus Christ, admitting that Jesus Christ, he has every right to every single area of our lives. Now consider this teaching so far. Most people of the world are headed for destruction. Most people will get caught up in the counterfeit religions of the world. False teachers are present everywhere, and persecution can even come from our own families. You see, it's about counting the cost of following after Christ, recognizing that we are not headed for popularity. We're headed for persecution. Now, the reason we have taken the time to consider these somber truths this morning. The reason we've started our message this way this morning is because this mindset is the backdrop of our text. You see, the Apostle Paul, by the time of Acts 17, this man had already been stoned. He had already been beaten and arrested for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This was a man who was not known for being lukewarm in his faith. Paul knew that absolutely most would reject the message. Most would not be drawn to the Savior. But Paul continued forward because his obedience was to Jesus Christ. Now, Verse 1 in Acts 17. It informs us that Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they were on the move. Notice Luke says, they moved on. He doesn't include himself. He doesn't include himself, signaling that we think Luke stayed behind. Now, why do we think he stayed behind? Well, first of all, we think he was from Philippi. Second of all, we think he stayed behind to pastor the church there. But verse 1, it takes us away from the city of Philippi to the city of Thessalonica, which was about 100 miles apart. And just as Luke records, they would have traveled through Amphilopolis and Apollyana. Now, if they traveled on foot, it would have been about a three-day journey, probably making their stops at night in these towns. Now, it's not difficult to imagine that they were still in pain from the beatings that they had taken in Philippi. Not long after Paul's beating, hear me, not long after Paul's beating in jail at Philippi, Paul walked almost a hundred miles in three days to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you go that far in your faith? Paul could not be silenced. The Roman-built highway they were on was called the Ignatian Way. It's an impressive work. This particular highway was about 700 miles long. And it was nearly 20 feet wide. And you could see it was paved with the stones that were put down by hand. Now normally, this highway was used to carry Roman troops to battle. And now, what was it doing in the sovereignty of God? It was carrying the blessed gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the known world and into Greece. Now Thessalonica itself was no small city. It was a major seaport. It, at the time, was the second largest city of all of Greece. It still is the second largest city of all of Greece. It goes by a different name today. But it still is at the same exact location. At the time of Acts, it's estimated that it was a city of roughly 200,000 people. 
And Luke told us, if you remember, he told us that Philippi, it didn't have a synagogue, but now we learn that Thessalonica, it did. And Paul went into the synagogue on the Sabbath. And Luke is giving us a very cliff note version, a very compressed account of Paul's stay at Thessalonica. Paul went to the synagogue on the Sabbath and he reasoned with them out of the scriptures. And according to verse 3, Paul was explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preached to you is who? The Christ. You see, Paul was just sitting there. I believe Paul was just sitting there opening up the word of God. And I believe the text is indicating he was just simply pointing it out. He was unrolling the word of God and showing them point by point why the Messiah needed to suffer. Showing them that the Messiah would actually rise again from the dead. And showing them how this man, Jesus of Nazareth, how he fulfilled all these prophecies about the first coming of Christ. But this is not really what the Jews were expecting, was it? This is not really what the Jews wanted. This was not what most Jews in that day wanted to hear as the popular message. They didn't want to hear that the Old Testament predicted that the Messiah would come to suffer, that the cross of Christ came before his rule on earth would come. You see, the Jews, by and large, what did they want? They wanted a ruler. They wanted a kingdom right there. They wanted a Messiah who would come and smash and smash that power of Rome down and make Jerusalem the center and capital of the world. But that day was not yet. I was reading the other day about things that people find in used books. It's a pretty impressive list. You should check this out sometime. One online bookseller, abebooks.com, said the, here's the list of some of the things that they have found in used books. It includes 40 $1,000 bills. Now that makes me want to go right down to Value Village and start <laughs> going through the books. 40 $1,000 bills. They found a, a Mickey Mantle rookie baseball card. A marriage certificate from 1879 a baby's tooth, that's odd, a diamond ring, a World War II ration card, a pair of scissors, a cockroach, and my personal favorite, a strip of bacon. Adam Tobin, owner of Unnameable Books in Brooklyn, New York, he actually made a, a little montage, if you will, a little display of the things that he has found in his store. And the most valuable thing that Adam has found in used books is a letter that was written by C.S. Lewis. But you know what? None of these things can compare to what can be discovered in God's Word. Amen? Because within it, a person can find hope. Within it, they can find the eternal riches of God's grace. They can find Christ. And I think this is what happened at Thessalonica. Most of the Jews were going to stick with the traditions, all those traditions they had. But a few, a few being drawn by the Savior would look to the prophecies of the suffering servant and they were persuaded to the truth of God's eternal word. Notice the careful wording in verse 4. Some of them were persuaded. Some of the Jews that Paul had been trying to reach came to believe the evidence from the word of God that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. 
See, the text is telling us that Paul reasoned with them, meaning that this wasn't just Paul standing up here and preaching and then going home. There was a dialogue, a back and forth, question and answer. He explained the evidence, and Paul proclaimed to them the saving grace of God through Christ. Paul had the evidence on his side, didn't he? Consider just Psalm 22, written over 1,000 years before this by David, perfectly predicting the crucifixion of the Messiah. Paul could have pointed to Isaiah 53 or Zechariah 12 to demonstrate the suffering, the death, and the resurrection of the Messiah that's been predicted by the prophets. Those Jews that believed, they joined with Paul, they joined with Silas. But notice the other group of people that Luke records that came to faith in Christ. He says that a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So don't miss this contrast that Luke is actually intentionally pointing out for us. Some of the Jews believed, not all of them, some, but the God-fearing Greeks, a great multitude came to believe in Jesus as the Christ. And of the leading women, not just a few. Now here is why this is actually mentioned. Luke's telling us something here. You see, in this region, in this region, the women of Macedonia had more of a role in the markets. They had more of a role in public than most areas in the Roman Empire. This was the exception in that day. These were women from the upper class. It seems they were women of influence. And Paul could write to these new converts shortly after this, and he says this. He says, you received the word of God, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who what? Believe. Now, but here comes the opposition back in Acts in verse 5. The enemy was there. The enemy's always always there. But the Jews, who were not persuaded, became envious. And they took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, they set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. The motive was simply jealousy because they didn't take kindly to some of the Greeks and a large number of the Jews and Greeks pulling out of the synagogue to follow Jesus Christ. And that, that is what happens when God is at work. We're going through a little bit of this right now as a church. I'll just tell you this. I am aware of a situation, so if you bring it to me, I already know. But another church is upset with us. And another church has their feathers ruffled because we are growing, because we're growing in number, and jealousy has actually set in. This is the kind of thing that happens when men don't live to honor Jesus Christ. It happens when men live for their own glory. And as a church, I'm just setting down this marker. We are not going there. We are not going there. We are going to keep preaching Jesus Christ. We're going to let him receive all the glory. And then we're going to mind our own business right here. And we're always going to pray for our brethren. Amen? Amen. That's our path. So now, the prominent families, they pulled out. When the Greeks pulled out of the synagogue, the Jews, they lost some of their influence. They lost the financial support of those families. But notice how shallow, how weak, how, excuse my language, but pathetic these, these Jews were. They took evil men from the marketplace. I mean, how bad is that? The King James, I think it says, lewd men of baser sort. I like that. The wording indicates men who were market loafers. That's what the text means, market loafers, good-for-nothings, men who sat around all day long in the marketplace just sitting there doing nothing. 
The Bible calls them evil. Why? Because they were lewd, it says. They sat around causing problems for people instead of doing an honest day's labor. The Jews, this is how sad their scene had become. They had to turn to men like this because they knew that they could not go head to head with the Apostle Paul with an honest discussion from the Word of God. It's a coward's way out, isn't it? They gathered up a great number of them to do their dirty work, and then they set the entire city in an uproar. They created a mob who had very little interest in the truth. And then poor Jason, they attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the people. Now, we don't know a lot about this guy. We don't know a lot about Jason. We get the picture from the text that Paul and Silas had been staying with him. He probably was a convert to the faith, and he may have been a Jew because Jason was a name that was often taken by Jewish men living throughout the Roman Empire. Jason was simply the Greek equivalent of Joshua or Jesus. So this mob showed up at Jason's house, but Paul and Silas, they weren't there. So notice what they did. Not only did they trash his house, but take a look starting in verse 6. It says, but when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason. Jason has harbored them. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. So they could not find Paul. They could not find Silas. So instead they drag out Jason and other Christians that were at his home. I'm kidding, but I think the message is if you don't want to follow Christ, don't hang out with somebody who is really following after Christ. You may get dragged out there too. They couldn't, they couldn't find Paul and Silas. They drag out Jason and other Christians that were there. Not only were the Jews filled with envy, not only did they use other men to do their dirty work, but when they got the Christians before the city rulers, what did they do? The Jews actually lied. They actually lied. They accused Paul and Silas as being the ones who caused the uproar, even though, who was it that first started this mess? It was the Jews that started it. You see, at the city of Thessalonica, we know that there was five, count them, five magistrates that were elected by the people, and these five were responsible. They were elected officials. They were responsible for enforcing all the laws. But what were the Jews doing? They were accusing Paul and Silas of disturbing the Pax Romana, the Roman peace that was so important to the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire would not tolerate anyone messing around with this. So the Jews, they couldn't be honest. They couldn't lodge their actual complaint to the officials at Thessalonica. They couldn't sit there and go in and say, hey, wait a minute, these guys, they're teaching a theology that we don't like. So if it's not too much trouble, would you just beat them, please, and maybe even kill them? Couldn't do it. Apparently, the Jews knew that Paul and Silas had problems in other cities because notice what they said. These who have turn the world upside down, have come here too. Now this is one of the greatest compliments ever given to believers. These men, Paul and Silas, have caused problems all over the Roman Empire. Now they've come here too. Jason had received them. Jason had taken them in. And think of this last accusation in verse 7. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, there is another king who... Jesus. 
Now, this was very dangerous at this point. This was a dangerous accusation. This would have been considered high treason in the Roman Empire. This was enough to ruin a man. But this was the same accusation that was made against Christ himself. Do you remember in Luke 23, the Jews had brought Jesus before Pilate, and it reads starting in verse 2, and they began to accuse him, saying, we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Then Pilate asked him, saying, are you the king of the Jews? He answered him and said, it is as you say. Jesus proclaimed a kingdom not of this world. And we know from the letters that he would go on to write to the church that Paul had been proclaiming the establishment of his kingdom when Christ returns. But to a person from the Roman Empire, what they were actually speaking, what they were saying, it sounded very much like they had broken the oath of loyalty that every person in the Roman Empire was required to make to Caesar. So the magistrates here of Thessalonica, they had to take notice. They had to pay attention to this serious charge, but it made no sense. Let's stop and think about it for a second. If the magistrates were being honest, then either Jesus was dead, and therefore there was no threat from a king who was dead, right? Or they had to conclude that Jesus was alive, and if he was alive, he was a real threat. And therefore, what would they have been doing? Confirming his resurrection. But something else was taking place back in Acts. See, as we read through the book of Acts, here's what we do. We tend to sometimes get the impression that Paul and his little group of men were the only Christians out there in this big bad world of sharing the gospel. And they were the only ones out there starting new churches. But that's not true. We know that by this time, a major uprising had already happened in Rome, in the city of Rome. You see, the Jews had been rioting, and it got to the point, it got so bad that Emperor Claudius, he had to make an edict in 49 AD. He had to expel all of the Jews out of Rome. And we're actually about to see this in chapter 18 of Acts that Aquila and Priscilla had come to the city of Corinth because the emperor had commanded the Jews to leave. Now we know that the Jews were rioting in Rome. We know that Claudius kicked the Jews out of Rome. And the source of contention seems to be that some Christians had made their way to the city of Rome and had begun preaching Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. And of course that stirred it all up. It stirred it all up. So at the point of Acts 17, we are past 49 AD. We're already past that when this took place at Rome. So we know that these officials at Thessalonica, they had to be aware of this. They knew of the problem with the Jews and the Christians in the city of Rome. They knew of all the riots that had been going on. So for this mob to actually claim that Paul and his group were speaking out about Caesar and made sure that the magistrates would do something about this charge. You see, the magistrates, at the very least, put an end to the mob. They had to do that because if word made its way back to Rome that a riot had taken place, the next thing that these city officials would see would be Roman troops, a Roman army, walking into their streets. Remember, at Thessalonica, these magistrates were elected. They're politicians. They had to answer for keeping the peace. So notice the effect that these accusations had on both the people and on the rulers of the city, starting in verse 8. 
And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Now Jason and some of the believers were taken into custody and then let go. Why? Well, the Jews, they were really looking for Paul. He was the head honcho. He was the troublemaker. They wanted Paul, not Jason. But Jason and these believers would have been required to post a bond. This is what Luke is referring to here in verse 9, that they had taken security of them. This was taking a bond from them. Their bond system, it worked different than ours does today. Today, a bond is posted to make sure that an accused person will actually come back and face the charges. Their bond system was totally different. The money that would have been put down was a way of pledging or guaranteeing, ensuring that another riot wouldn't happen, that another problem wouldn't happen. And Jason and those with him would have been required to put up some money to post a bond, depositing a sum of money to make sure that it would have been surrendered to the government if there would have been another disturbance. Meaning, in order to make sure that there was not another riot at Thessalonica, Paul and Silas needed to do what? They need to get out of town, and it would be very difficult to return. So Paul later confirmed this. He said this. He said, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but what happened? Satan hindered us. You see, Paul could not go there. Otherwise, the Jews would have started up another mob. And Jason and these other believers would have been arrested all over again. But this is why shortly after these events, Paul wrote to the church the two letters that are in our Bibles today. And how did God use this? Because of these events that we're reading about in Acts 17, we have two books of the Bible written to this church that we probably would not have had not the events of Acts 17 unfolded exactly as they did. But the immediate effect of this, the immediate effect is found in verse 10 where we read that the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night. Paul and Silas literally had to leave under the cover of darkness, but a beachhead for the gospel of Christ had been established at Thessalonica. When a place has been besieged for years by war, in a land where people cannot find enough food to eat, you would think that there would be very, very little interest in books. But during the height of the Syrian war in the suburb of Damascus, Book enthusiasts, they actually stocked an underground library with books from bombed out buildings. People had to dodge shells and bullets just to get to this library, buried underneath a building that was damaged by bombs itself. Now this secret library, it provided a, a huge hope for the people and an opportunity to actually learn even though they were in a war zone. Volunteers had gone out and collected 14,000 books on almost every subject that you can imagine. Often going up to the buildings that had been on the front lines, getting blown up, they would go collect the books. Now it may seem a little extreme to us, risking your life for some used books, but they, they took advantage of this. They used these books. They poured through the books for medical advice. They used the books to teach their kids. And one man was quoted as saying, in a sense, the library gave me back my life. Books motivate us to keep on going. We want to be a free nation, and hopefully by reading, we can achieve this. It was in Berea 
that Paul and Silas met men that were committed to the written word, men with a hunger to learn. Now Berea itself was about 50 miles away from Thessalonica. It was nestled into the Olympian mountain range. It was a remote region, and by foot it would have been another three-day walk. Once again, Paul and Silas began their witness in the synagogue. This took courage at this point. This took a lot of courage after everything Paul had gone through, but this time there was a completely different reaction by the Jews. Luke describes them in verse 11 as fair-minded, more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. Now why did he say such a thing? Because they received the word with readiness. They searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. They received the teaching of the word of God about the Christ. Then they turned around and they opened up the scrolls. They opened up the word of God for themselves and they judged Paul's message by the standard of absolute scripture. They didn't do this once a week. They didn't search out the scriptures once a month. They searched out the scriptures daily. There must have been some great Bible studies in that town as they poured over the scrolls of the Hebrew Scriptures, diligently comparing Scripture with Scripture to see if this Jesus whom Paul was preaching was indeed the Messianic Savior of the world. When you have men already at the point of looking for the truth about Jesus Christ, the result is what we see listed. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. You see, God used this, didn't he? God used their study of the scriptures. Again, not just the Jews, but the Greek men, the Greek women also came to saving faith in Christ. But the persecution, it continued. We read in verse 13 that the Jews of Thessalonica, they heard that Paul was down there in Berea preaching the word of God. So they came again and they stirred up the people, probably not stirring up the Jews so much, but stirring up the Greeks of the city like they had done at Thessalonica. Now, the Spirit of God is giving us a pretty sad commentary about these Jews, that they were so upset with Paul in his preaching of the Word of God that they traveled on down the road 50 more miles to put a stop to it. So good old Paul, Paul had to be sent away again. Silas and Timothy were able to remain there establishing this new church. Then Paul came to Athens where he instructed Silas and Timothy to come to him just as soon as they could. Many years ago, there was a man by the name of Michael Billister. Now, Michael was a Bible distributor, and he visited a small village in Poland shortly before World War II. He gave a Bible to a man from a village. And this man, he took the Bible home, and he read the Bible. And through just a simple reading of the Word of God, he came to salvation in Christ. And this man, then he decided that he needed to share this. So he took out some of the pages of the Bible and he began to share it for other people in the village to read. And one by one, with time, people from this small village, they kept coming to know the Lord simply from studying the Word of God. Eventually, some 200 people had come to know the Lord. And when Michael finally was able to return to this village, he gathered together all the Christians for a time of worship. And normally what he would do was ask for a testimony before he would preach. But this time he suggested that several of the people share some verses of scripture that they memorized. Seems like a simple thing, right? But with this, the people were a little confused. They didn't understand his request. 
Finally, one man stood up and said, perhaps we've misunderstood. Did you mean verses or did you mean chapters? You see, these new believers in Christ had not memorized a few verses here and there from the Bible. They had memorized whole chapters. They had memorized whole books of the Bible. Thirteen people actually knew the entire book of Matthew, Luke, and half of Genesis. Another person there had memorized the entire book of Psalms. All of this from one Bible given to one village. You see, Luke records that the Jews at Berea were more fair-minded than those at Thessalonica. And it was not because of something in themselves. It was not that they had more intellect. It was not because they came from good families or because they had better training and education. They were more noble. Why? Because they received the word of God. They simply wanted to know the truth of God's word. They demonstrated a willingness to receive the word and then they acted in obedience to it. And the Bible says they acted in obedience to the word of God. They, they received it with readiness of mind. They searched the scriptures daily. They investigated the scriptures and placed them side by side with what Paul had been preaching to see if it was true. Let's pray. Lord, make us more like them. Make us hunger for it. Give us the passion to test everything, Lord, every doctrine, every thought with your word, your truth. This is our prayer this morning in your son's holy name. Amen. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening. Pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.